This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. You are listening to Quick to Listen, and this is Morgan Lee. I'm an assistant editor at Christianity Today, and today I am joined by a special co-host, Ted Olson, CT senior editor. Ted, hey. Hey. Yeah, Caitlin's away this week, so I am here instead. So yeah, I'm senior editor at Christianity Today and editor of a sister publication called The Behemoth. Uh, and our other guest is Adam Graber, who I met uh, years ago at a conference called Bible Tech. And he's been writing about uh, technology in the church uh, for years, since about 2009. Uh, he's been on the Social Media Church podcast. He's been in the New York Times. He wrote a great article for Leadership Journal on how cars created the megachurch. And I interviewed him for uh, my Hacking the Bible cover story years ago. Uh, thrilled to have him here. Hey, Adam. Hi, Ted. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for joining us. We are thrilled to have you, too. Ted, as you know, through listening to our podcast, guys, Ted has been like a big fan, but also really a good coach through all of us. In this I experience. heard it before any of you. <laughs> it's true. Even the ones that never came out. Anyway, so everything that we cover on Quick to Listen is a controversy, and controversies obviously are complex, and they're contentious, and we spend each quick to listen episode trying to acknowledge the tensions and then work them out best and see how we as Christians can respond to them. Ted, what is the story this week? Yeah, so we thought we'd look at Facebook not using an algorithm for once. There was a report out of Gizmodo uh, last week that said that their trending topics, which is kind of the uh, news summary at the uh, upper left-hand corner of Facebook, uh, that was curated by contractors. It wasn't uh, an actual algorithmically driven uh, list. And on top of that, uh, the report said that it was uh, suppressing conservative uh, websites and news. Uh, we don't mean uh, Fox News, but more like sites like Breitbart and Washington Examiner. Facebook responded to that saying, no, no, we don't suppress anything. Uh, we just limit exposure to like spammy and low quality websites. Uh, you'll remember in like 2008 or actually more recently than that even, uh, they really downplayed sites like Upworthy and other, other websites that were getting a lot of traction. Then The Guardian came out a couple days later and said, basically, Facebook is lying. Uh, they really are uh, using humans to pick those trending topics. And they're just basically going to news websites and saying, here's what we think is important or what we think uh, should be important. So Black Lives Matter was not actually showing up very much on Facebook. And they said, well, it should be. So they made a little... Black Lives Matter trending topics to get people talking about it. So between people feeling like Facebook was pushing stuff at them uh, that wasn't uh, naturally generated and the idea that they were pushing it in a more uh, liberal direction and suppressing conservative news, uh, there's been outrage, as there always is about social media. Can I ask you one quick question, Ted? Can you give the layman's version of algorithm or definition of that? Yeah. I mean, an algorithm is almost any kind of program that tries to take complex data and simplify it into something that can be it can be used. So kind of like this show? No, I'm teasing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, this show will be compressed into ones and zeros. So in that sense, yes. But it usually usually when we talk about algorithms, um, we're less talking about the actual programs like Boolean logic and that kind of thing. Although officially that's what we what 
uh, an algorithm is. We're usually talking about things like your credit score, right? Where everything, all your purchasing uh, decisions, all of your credit card activity, your house ownership, all of your financial uh, decision making is boiled down to a simple number that then other people can use to sell you stuff or make decisions about you. So we're at the point of the show where we're going to do a gut check right now. And a gut check is when we just try to get everyone's initial knee-jerk reactions about how they feel about this news in 140 characters. So, Adam, give me your gut check. Yeah, I I think algorithms have bias because humans have bias. And uh, algorithms simply amplify that bias. And I think, uh, ultimately, objectivity is a pipe dream. But alternatively, humility is a worthy aspiration. My gut check was simply, I was really surprised that that was not an algorithm, mm-hmm. aside from all of the issues of uh, political bias or trying to perfect a, a program, for me, it was rather surprising that Facebook was creating this list because it didn't seem like a high quality list to me. So that they're spending a lot of money to have humans pick it. I thought, man, mm. humans should be doing a better job than this. My gut check was just that this felt like more ammunition for talk radio out there and confirming a lot of their feelings about particular big businesses not being on their side or having an interest in even having them in a part of the conversation. I want to get into a bigger discussion now and kind of talk about the fact that this this is a story that has been distressing a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. And I've noticed it's been frustrating for progressives as well, not just conservatives. I just want to know, what do you guys see as most distressing about this story? I mean, I think it's interesting, uh, Ted, what you said about how editors actual people are are picking these stories so at what point were you imagining that humans came into that process because i mean there's headlines that we see in those trending topics and obviously someone had to write those what where were you imagining that i was assuming that the trending topics was was at least limited by a geography um, that is to say, uh, okay. you know, if, if it were truly like what the world is talking about, I would expect it to be a lot of uh, fairly local Indian and Chinese news, uh, for example, although not necessarily heaviest uh, Facebook users in those countries. But <laughs> okay. um, if it were truly what the world was talking about. But so in America, um, that was using at least that level of algorithm to say you're in America. In America, here's what people are talking about. Similar to the Twitter trending topics. I see. Um, I assume that at, at, at the stage, the humans would have said, at the broadest level, we're trying to. It seemed like Facebook's under been under a lot of criticism for kind of the echo chamber effect uh, that you only hear about what your friends are talking about, and therefore you don't hear about stories that would that are just mm, important, right. right? And that the culture at large was talking about. It seemed like trending topics was an effort to push past that, and so it seemed to me to be like an exclusion from just your general newsfeed algorithm right. of beyond what your friends are talking about or what we and our advertisers want to push to you. Here's kind of more of a free-flowing, weighted by popularity, right. news topics by popularity right. list. I think the distressing part was, yeah, how few people are making these decisions. And our expectation is, like you said, that it's 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 a group of algorithms telling us what's most popular, what our circle or, or what the national conversation is, rather than a group of people in New York making those decisions for us, what we see. Isn't that what the definition of trending is, though? A group of people in New York deciding what's going to be popular for the rest of the country? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is all sorts of ways that influencers just 
decide this is going to be the conversation. And this is definitely not the only example of um, something that seems, you know, ran not random, but uh, hands off actually ending up being being human generated. I mean, even to the point of you know, a few years ago, there was kind of this oddly internet popular Twitter account uh, called the Horse eBooks, and it was just like supposedly random phrases drawn from books. And yeah, it turned out it was just a person. Uh, going through and picking them, trying to seem uh, like a, like a, a Twitter bot, but it's actually human human making those decisions. I think that, in some ways, for me, is what was most distressing, and probably for a lot of other people, was Facebook trying to have this perception and to maintain its perception mm-hmm, right. that we're just an algorithmically driven company, and yeah, we might tweak your uh, you know news feed to give you more of the things that you like but that we're really just an we're really just a a neutral uh, data driven company and you know there's a study that came out from University of Illinois a year ago about you know looking at it was a small number of Facebook users but it was a solo study that that made some of the rounds and it found that 62% of the people in their study didn't even know that Facebook was using an algorithm in their friend feed so the people the majority of people didn't even know that what was in their friend feed was not what people were, were sharing with, or was not the entirety of what people were sharing. And they were noting in some of that that there were real interpersonal effects for that. Like there were people who were really depressed uh, because mm-hmm. no one was commenting on their stuff, and they found out later, oh, it's because Facebook, for whatever algorithm reason, is not showing my thing. Yeah, I'm not fitting into its algorithms. I'm not fitting into its algorithms, and therefore my my closest friends are not even seeing my stuff, and right. therefore they're not commenting on it. Or they have a feeling like, oh, this person must really like me. But it's just, no, Facebook decided that the two of you were simpatico for some reason. One of the most distressing things that came across was just the way that it felt heavy-handed on the part of Facebook, and it felt a bit bureaucratic in that sense. Like, this was a top-down decision from managers at Facebook who were saying, oh, yeah, we are aware of this trending topic. That's maybe a a conservative um, touching point but we don't want to feature it because we don't want to give it visibility. That seemed to be what the articles were suggesting. I don't know how true that was, but that seems to be what these anonymous sources are are accusing Facebook of. Ted, you worked on the news team here at Christianity Day for a while, and one of the things that you brought up earlier is that this is not about Fox News articles getting linked. This is about sites like Breitbart not getting their coverage promoted. So how do you see what Facebook is doing as different from what you did when you were part of the news team here? Right. I think every editor uh, who's looking at other websites has to kind of make those categorizations. Like, is this a website that aspires to being a news website, fairly objective, fairly neutral? Or is it one that's really a, an advocacy website? And the ways in which I think right. you treat that as a journalist uh, really, really differ. And so I think one of the problems with a lot of people is that they view people who agree with them politically as being more neutral uh, than people on the on the other side. Or trustworthy. Or trustworthy, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but even at Christianity Today, you know, there were a number, we're a fairly conservative place, but there's a lot of conservative websites, both some that claim neutrality and some that are transparently advocacy driven, that we would say, you know, we're just not going to link to them without checking out what they're saying first. Mm-hmm. You know, generally we would respond to a New York Times story the day it would come out and say, oh, New York Times is reporting this. That's pretty interesting. New York Times clearly has generally lefty leanings, but 
they also have extremely high standards for what they publish. Yeah. So we would say, yeah, let's we can follow up on that on day one. Whereas if it, something was from you know some of the ones that are more clearly pushing a political agenda, right. uh, we would say well, we're going to do our own w- reporting before mm-hmm. we follow up on yeah. on that story. You know, in fact, RedState.com had an interesting statement they published in the midst of this, saying, a we don't see in our page view data any damage from whatever Facebook has supposedly done. And then they also came along and said, we are kind of advocacy and it's fine for groups to label us as advocacy and maybe not include us in, you know, kind of top news story links. But if they do that, they should treat the, you know, liberal news sites that are the equivalent, like talking points memo or whatever, uh, the same way. And Mm -hmm. so their beef Mm -hmm. was not that they were excluded, but that talking points memo was included or some of the more liberal bloggy websites. So I think one of the ideas that has been raised here is about who gets to decide the credibility of these particular groups. And if Facebook is the arbitrator that we want to decide if some news outlet is indeed a news outlet. So Facebook has made some decisions you know, as a company that some people already feel are political. A couple of years ago, they introduced more than 50 different gender identifiers that people can use. They recently banned payday loans from advertising on their site. And in light of these decisions and others, can Facebook, you know, as a business, but also as a content distributor, actually be neutral? And the other question that I want to explore is, is that the right goal for it anyway? I think the short answer to uh, can they be neutral is no. Facebook is a for-profit company, and their bottom line uh, and their shareholders' uh, best interests are are Facebook's interests. So, um, in my mind, Facebook wants to keep you on their site and keep you clicking. And so, if they can use a trending topics bar to do that, they're going to do that. And so, they they can't they can't be neutral in that sense because they're um, looking to take care of their shareholders. Um, they're looking to keep their users happy, but their users aren't necessarily the ones driving the value of the site um, or, or directly creating the value that Facebook has. So, And they've done a really good job at finding things that are interesting to me. Um, I'm embarrassed at what I click on. Um, but when I click through, I typically can't actually get to a website, or I find it hard to at least get to a, a website that's not on Facebook already. Like I have to get off of Facebook and go to the New York Times or go to Fox News and find the article that they're talking about because you can't immediately click through to the article. They want to keep you on their site, and so they're going to find the ways. They're going to track all those statistics and find the ways that keep you on this, their site with their with their headlines with the news stories that they pick and they're going to do what works and if it's if it's left leaning then then they're going to do that too i think i don't know how much their own personal interests are involved i think it's hard to take that out for any for any individual who's making decisions like that but at the end of the day they want to see their page views go up their clicks go up and whatever they can do to make that happen, I think they're willing to do. Yeah. I guess the question, one of the questions for me is how much should news be like music uh, in some ways? Uh, I, I'm a Spotify premium subscriber and, you know, unsponsored plug here. I love it. I mean, I just think the ways in which Spotify is using machine learning uh, algorithms is unbelievable. Every week, you know, Discover Weekly comes out and by golly, if 
every song on that playlist is not a song that I wish I had known about. Now, the way they'd get that, uh, I've been doing a little more, you know, reading. So I'm like, how is this so good? Is it's it's lar- it's driven by both kind of tastemakers. So they're trying to right. pick those right. few people who are going to be aware of good music before the rest of us or who have uh, listening histories and they know that the songs these guys listen to are going to be popular, you know, three or four mm-hmm. months from now. So they're, they're focused on specific tastemakers. But then they're also using kind of that wisdom of the crowd uh, element of all the different playlists that people are creating. That, to me, it's working great for music. But then when I think about do I want my news to work this way? Uh, then I start to get a, a little bit nervous. I don't think that the crowd is very wise when it comes to what news is important or what they want to click on and read. At Christianity Today, we have a giant TV screen in the middle of our office that shows us exactly how many people are on our website at any given time hmm. and what articles they're reading. And at times, it's made me very discouraged about <laughs> our users' habits because huh. I know how to manipulate them. If I put an article about sex up there, if I put an article about a pastor's moral failure, if I put an article up there about some you know ephemeral pop culture thing, like it's going to go through the roof. And if, But if I put a deeply, deeply reported story that's really important about something happening internationally... I so few people click on it. You know, there's one of our editors who talks about the inverse relationship between the amount of time he puts into a story and the amount of traffic he gets because it's the <laughs> ephemeral stuff that goes through the roof and it's the stuff we work hard on because it's important. It doesn't always get the readership. So at CT, we're, we're pretty editorially driven. We do have a place you can go on our website to see our most popular articles, but we try to kind of bury that a little bit behind like, but here's what we think you need to be reading today. I think we're transparent about that and I think that makes it more trustworthy. I think if you kind of claim, you know, here's what's important, but it's really an algorithm that's doing popularity, or if you do the reverse, here's what's popular, but you're really trying to wish this were popular, then I think you've got a problem. Yeah. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. I've, I saw an, uh, a study maybe a year ago um, where they they looked at and this was in a, a small like Estonia or um, the, but they looked at newspapers from the 1800s to the 20th century and uh, explored how um, how the 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 design and layout of those of those newspapers changed and it changed from being um, uh, letting the reader decide what they read and uh, really cull through that stuff to allowing the the reporters to really make it more uh, accessible more easily available to read doing a lot more work and it's it's kind of the difference between 
driving a stick shift and driving an automatic. Today, with something like Facebook, you have an automatic machine that is making it very easy for you to kind of just pick and choose really quickly, but you don't get the same experience and you don't get the same control over what you read. It's just very different in that sense. But yeah, I think what you're seeing is Twitter now saying that from a business point of view, the letting the, the user decide what to read is not working. Uh, you know, tw- there's a lot of discussion about Twitter moving toward you know something more like Facebook, which is, you know, this has the most engagement right. or this has the most likes. Well, or I'll jump in there and say too, Ted, that like the pr- one of the primary ways that people use Twitter is to leave the site. Right. They will come yeah, back to absolutely. it, but it's about sharing things that will take you from Twitter.com into a third-party place. And right now, they've not been able to figure out a way to monetize that. In fact, when we were talking about, you know, Facebook being neutral or not, I was thinking a lot about like, well, maybe if they just explicitly said what their values were, then I would feel less maybe betrayed or like uncomfortable with it. But Adam, you already articulated what the value was, and that's to keep people on the site itself. Like the articles are chosen as a way to keep you glued to Facebook. And that's just not a a, a stated value and could never really be a stated value. But I think you can understand that if you think of it from like a money making perspective. I just want to switch gears a little bit and think of Paul's directions in Romans about being in the world and not of it and think about it as how we can possibly apply that to how we absorb content. One of the really wonderful things about algorithms is they help Ted not have to listen to every track in Spotify to find the music that he wants to and then auto make the playlist himself, right? They order they order things and present a way out of the chaos of the information overload that we're all in. And yet, of course, like many things, they can deceive us or they can underfulfill the promises that they have for us. And they can also kind of like help us justify things that we may not have justified beforehand. So I'm just wondering if we can think through this as Christians. Are there ways of ordering our information that are inherently more or less Christian? And how should we consume content um, in light of our space, especially when it comes to prioritizing and sorting data? There's definitely ways to think about the information that we're being presented with or presenting to others that is presenting in a in a accurate way. And I think it's a partly a question of um, of justice. Like, uh, are we presenting this story? Um, so that somebody's a winner and somebody's a loser? Or are we presenting both sides in a way that that respects both sides and lets the reader decide what they think about it? I'm going to interrupt you there for a second. So I think that goes to like story composition. But what about just like the volume of headlines that we may get if we did like a Google News search on a particular like the Super Bowl? We type in the Super Bowl into Google News and we're given 5,000 different headlines about what happened. Is there a Christian way that we figure out which of those headlines to read? Or is Google News not the best way to determine what that is? Should that be like, well, our default should be like going to our home newspaper's website and reading that headline from the Super Bowl story? Clearly, the answer is that you should go to ChristianityToday.com and see that's what's my, going that's on. That's what I do that first. Was, that, is, that is the most important. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> but that does get into uh, an aspect, which is singly sourced Media is not necessarily <laughs> the best media. Um, just getting your news from Facebook is not necessarily going to work. And I don't think anyone thinks that it would be mm-hmm. um, any more so than anyone thinks that just getting your news from the New York Times or just getting your news from Fox News is truly the best. But it is often the most you know, convenient. 
I also think we assume that more is better. And so, I mean, I think we do need to ask ourselves, why am I spending all this time on Facebook or, or going through my news feed or at Google News or, or even at CT? You know, what is it that I feel like I am, I'm benefiting from this? Because there's all sorts of, you know, emotional responses that these things give you. Fear, you know, joy. There's, Facebook got in trouble doing, you know, this, this test to see if face, if they could actually make people happier right. or sadder, depending on what they showed them. And, and they can. And Facebook probably wants to make you happier so that you'll stay there more. Unless they want to drive engagements. And in engagements, then they want to make you more outraged. And so Twitter, Twitter's become outraged city because that drives, that drives engagement. One of the things I found interesting uh, in reading multiple news sources on this was that they talked about how Facebook felt a little almost self-conscious about the, the level of the news that was, that was actually trending. Because apparently at one point it was completely algorithm driven and they were seeing articles that they were embarrassed by and they felt like twitter was a more serious news source and so facebook wanted to compete with that so they started to inject stories about black lives matter and about politics or or whatever they felt was more serious news journalism into those trending topics because they wanted to be perceived that way um and they and they didn't see themselves that way based on just the algorithms of their users. Right. People are generally embarrassed by crowds' behaviors. <laughs> and and I think that Facebook does not want to be the place where it's just, you know, ma- uh, mobs and crowds, right? They right. want it to be like, they want it to have that feeling of just you and your friends hanging out and talking about stuff. They can only do that if they run, like, algorithms on top of algorithms on top of algorithms because even your friends are putting out you know, thousands of posts and mm-hmm. and some of your friends that you really care about what they're doing, they're only putting out a couple and they get drowned out. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting uh, you know, on a related note, you know, Spotify has this, uh, had this problem where their shuffle was truly a shuffle. It would just randomly on, give me a list of 50 and it will randomize that 50. And they got so many complaints because people felt like the shuffle didn't sound random. But if you, if you take, 50 things like there's a good chance that some of them will end up in order if you shuffle the same 50 every day you'll get a bunch of those in the same order and so they said man we need to make we need to figure out a way to make uh random actually seem random (laughs) so now spotify's you know shuffle is not is is totally driven more by an algorithm of trying to separate things and making sure that it's not playing the same the same kind of shuffle over and over again. Huh. It's a very complex algorithm behind just something that you would think would be random. Facebook's doing the same thing to try to make it seem intimate when it's actually pretty crowded. I'm going to have to bring our conversation to a close right now, and I just want to maybe end on something that Ted touched on earlier right now, which is just the idea of an echo chamber and realizing that whether we get recommendations from algorithms or recommendations from our friends, there's a good chance that they are actually only reinforcing blind spots that we have already. So I'm going to leave you all with that. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter at CT Podcasts, and we're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT Podcasts, and maybe we'll show up in your timeline. Ooh, that'd be great. Maybe we'll trend. And now is the time we do Precious Moments. Caitlin's not here, so I get to do my own song, which, boy... I will go ahead and do it. I'm going to do it. Pray 
precious moments. How they linger. No, I don't know. That, uh, Caitlin does it better, but... Precious moments is the part of the podcast where everyone goes around and they share something happy in their lives right now. And they also share where we can find them on the internet. So, Adam, you get to go first. Thank you. Uh, my precious moment is I'm working on a new podcast myself with a friend of mine, Chris Ridgway, and we are going to be talking more about a lot of these types of questions, really about technology and the church and how technology shapes our faith. Um, and I've just been really excited. We've got three recorded. We haven't released it yet. But if you follow me at Adam Graber on Twitter, then you uh, can stay up to date and we'll let you know when that comes out. I'm at Ted Olson on Twitter. Um, uh, I'm pretty excited about an article I'm writing for The Behemoth, which is the main job I'm doing these days. Uh, for those not familiar with it, it is a magazine about awe and wonder that draws heavily on uh, the natural sciences and also history, personal narrative, a bunch of other stuff. But awe and wonder is the main point. We do a lot of animal coverage. <laughs> and right now, I am writing an article about bison, which was bison. bison. They were just named the National Mammal of the United States. And so I am looking at what is so cool about bison. My precious moment is that I get to go to AT&T Park and see the Giants this week. Ooh, cool. I'm going to California tonight and i would like everyone i guess it doesn't matter if they pray for me or not because this podcast will come after i fly there uh, i've yeah. heard the tsa lines are really long but you see so you can pray for everybody else that will be affected by ted and i will pray for you so long as we don't have to pray for the giants i'm happy yeah because they're playing the cubs this weekend all right well that's it ted i'm so happy that you were able to be my co-host this week so thank you adam i'm glad that you joined the show as well listeners thank you all for tuning in to another episode of quick to listen this show is produced by richard clark and cray alred cray is cheering for the wrong basketball team guys special thanks to kate shellnut you can subscribe to our show on itunes soundcloud stitcher and overcast thank you if you like the show make sure to review us on itunes and that helps us out a lot we will see you all next week bye this episode was brought to you in part by the truce podcast the new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the republican party with the help of world-class historians Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.